Hello and welcome to the Produce Retail Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Nickel, and thank you so much for joining us this week for a special episode. Now, if you're a regular listener, you have probably noticed that within the overall context of produce retail, we mostly focus in four areas on this podcast. One is executive perspective, where we hear from directors and vice presidents of produce. Two is produce manager perspective, where we talk to produce managers and about topics that are particularly relevant to that group. Three is marketing and merchandising, where we visit with folks both on the retail side and others who have kind of a bird's eye view to consumer trends that influence retail. And then fourth is leadership and training, which seems pretty self-explanatory. So we'll venture beyond those general areas on occasion, but those are really our core buckets. And by the way, we actually have playlists for each of those. So please feel free to give me a shout on LinkedIn if you want me to send you those links. You can find me again. It's Ashley Nickel, A-S-H-L-E-Y-N-I-C-K-L-E. I mentioned those four areas because what we're going to do for the last few weeks of the year here and into the beginning of the new year is revisit some of the best conversations we had on each of these kind of broad topics in 2023. Today, we're revisiting some of our favorite conversations on marketing and merchandising. We'll start with this episode featuring Jonna Parker, the fresh food team lead at Circana. Jonna specializes in analyzing sales data, consumer trends, and other sources of information to find and explore opportunities for fresh foods, including, of course, produce. In this discussion, Jonna talks about a metric called dollar trade efficiency. And what that metric is about essentially is understanding what percentage of sales for an item that's on promotion were actually incremental. How much lift is really happening when the price is being lowered to try and and drive traffic and additional volume. So we also talked about how to retrain consumers who have learned to only buy certain items on promotion. Here are a few of the highlights. So you mentioned grapes and berries. And one of the things that shocked me when I look at just percent of sales on promotion, berries, grapes, and I'll put melons back in that, in that other category. Melons also are in this, but melons are more similar. They season, obviously promotion berries and grapes, which are 52 week categories at this point, from a supply standpoint, they have weans and waxes. Almost 50% of their sales are sold on promotion. 50 And here's the second metric I want us to consider using because it's part of the base data set. What is the, we call it dollar trade efficiency. It's a mumbo jumbo word to say, hey, what percentage of the sales you sold on that promotion are actually incremental, Mm -hmm. are actually efficient? And so it's a number that in and of itself doesn't mean anything. But in conjunction with the percent of sales, it really does start to mean something. And then when you trend it over time, you start to see, is it worth pulling this lever? How dollar trade efficiency gets calculated is, of course, we're seeing the algorithms are running through the data. Again, this is base data. This isn't advanced analytics. I could run this report where I'm looking at it right now. And really with dollar trade efficiency, we're always calculating at the item store week level, what is that rate? And so, of course, we can forecast in the data, what would have we expected to sell on a 52-week basis? So when that promotion gets flagged, anything that sells above what we expected on that basis and I shouldn't say 52 weeks because I'm produce actually shorter. But at any rate, we're predicting what we should have sold when the promotion happens. Did we sell above or below that expectation? 
That's the percent that's efficient of dollar trade efficiency. And here's what the Barry story got really interesting for me. 49% of sales in the last 52 weeks for berries rung through the register, just pure sales. 49% of them had a short-term price discount on promotion. Only 18% of that sales was incremental. We have trained people to look for berry sales and grape sales. Similarly, grapes do slightly better. Grapes had 45% of sales on promotion. 21% was efficient. So where I'm going with that stat then is let's start to benchmark year over year. One of the benefits, I will say, of berries and grapes, they are seeing increasing percent of dollars on promotion. They are seeing a slight uptick in efficiency. Now, some of that is the reality of berries, grapes, and other fresh fruits are using promotion to try to get in the basket as people are looking for deals. If I would argue maybe somebody would have even bought a fresh produce, especially a grape or a berry, which is more expensive than an apple or banana, I think is the mindset of why we're promoting those categories more. We're worried about the absolute price per pound. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the bigger reason, especially as we're lapping trade calendars, is my market share is declining. I'm going to run a sale. (laughs) All of those factors, though, are intuitive. The data would actually allow us to get down and dirty on which promotions truly drove those lifts. What was the market dynamics of that week? And that sounds like you need a big old database and a lot of people with glasses on to mine it. We've actually automated those algorithms, as I mentioned, with elasticity and sensitivity. That level of forecasting and knowledge, big data is so easy now We've come up with a way that we call always on analytics. We're literally in preparation for today. I asked my analytics team, something that would have taken us weeks and months and major investment back in my perishables group days, working with PhDs. We now have tools that automate that. So it's kind of a next level. I would say, first and foremost, the recommendation is wherever your categories may be in produce, understand not just your price dollar volume, and then obviously understand your market share and any kind of drives and swings there. But then get into, are the dollars in promotion I'm doing efficient? Because every week we can calculate that. And when you've looked at that and said, well, now what should I do? We can get into the forecasting tools and the elasticity tools that you started with here. And that next level thinking has now been automated. So I can tell you, for example, I told you all these stories about how much more sensitive things have become across fruits Mm -hmm. and especially across total fresh and total produce. However, what's been interesting about, I'm looking on the other page now at some of our sensitivity and elasticity measures and looking at it over time, lemons have actually returned to their pre-COVID inelasticness. We're cooking more at home. Lemons and fresh lemons are seen as a needful ingredient. They're typically pretty low price per a volume. And as we cook more and we want to cook more fresh, no big de- lemons are more in demand regardless of price change. Similarly, Spinach has returned to being less elastic than it used to be. Again, one of those items that you don't need to price promote, people have it on their list or not. Mm-hmm. We found similar things. We did a big study last year with our partners in the Mushroom Council. And it, again, empowered that whole industry with very specific retailer level insights. But the overall takeaway was our opportunity in mushrooms isn't necessarily use the price lever. It's to combine mushrooms because then you start to get into tier three, which is cross elasticity. And what we found was it wasn't the actual price of mushrooms that really caused erraticness, but mushrooms could be susceptible. There's other items in the store that are commonly paired with mushrooms go up or down the price of mushrooms or the sales result of mushrooms, I should say, not the price become impacted. 
And that's really, as I'm summing up all this data, not everything follows the total store story. We've got staples. We've got some staples that need price promotion, (laughs) as we talked about earlier. Then we've also got some ingredients that are more susceptible to other factors than price. All of this data is so possible, but I think it's the discipline. It's the thinking about it. It's the application of it that's really the difference maker. It's We've all been doing this forever a certain way. CPG 20 years ago said the same thing. <laughs> and I just think the difference though, as I'm meeting with retailers, especially this summer, as I'm talking with suppliers, we know our backs are up against the wall. We've been through a lot of erraticness where we had natural demand and natural uh, things keeping our supply at bay. We're back to some semblance of new normal. We have all this learning. I really believe that the folks who apply it and make smarter pricing decisions, either the retailers starting to get creative with what they do promote and not promote. And I think suppliers who take control of where does my consumer respond to price and what am I susceptible to? And then feed that into a forecast and imagine then how to set your trade calendar accordingly. Another unique conversation we had this year was about the intersection of fresh produce and one of the hottest topics in the broader grocery world, retail media networks. I asked several folks from the supplier side to join us for perspective on this subject, and they had some terrific insight. Here's one of my favorite portions of the discussion with Diane Scalisi, Director of Omnichannel Marketing for Driscoll's, and Danielle Huber, Senior Marketing Manager for CMI Orchards. And I was curious too, I know on the CPG side, it's expected for a lot of those companies to participate in some of these different opportunities in, in the shopper facing channels is, has that been the case for, for grocery or, you know, for produce, is it changing as, as some of these retail media networks get established or what do you all see in that regard? Yes, I think this is an area of opportunity um, for for produce suppliers to um, kind of set expectations a little bit better. We we don't have the deep pockets uh, of of our CPG counterparts in center store, um, but yet we play that critical role for the retailers. Dot, you know their dot com expression. So I think there needs to be an ongoing evolution of how do uh, produce suppliers fit in? What are the tactics that we can do? Maybe, you know, maybe there's discussions of different types of pricing structures because it's not, it's really not a one size fits all. Um, and so I think that's that's part of our ongoing conversations with customers, and um, not always not always an easy conversation to have. Yeah, I 100% agree with everything Diane said. Um, That's definitely a struggle for us as well. And um, it's hard to communicate that because you want to be able to do all of the things that the CPG, you know, companies can do and and do. Um, And it's exciting and we want to try all of the things. But when it comes down to it, yeah, I I agree. Our pockets just aren't deep enough yet. (laughs) I do find it super interesting because again you just you think about the role of produce for the store as a whole and these retail media networks obviously they're they're another revenue stream for the retailer which is important but you also think man if if that's gonna be your face to the shopper in all these different places 
you know, fresh is important to your shopper. So you want those folks to be there. So that's, I appreciate you all sharing kind of how, how you approach that, because I think it's something that's, that's important, you know, not just for produce suppliers, but I think it's important for retailers too. Actually, I would add one other thing in, in that we've found that for most retailers, so, you know, the, uh, the contact that our day-to-day business has, has been with the buyer or with the category manager, and it's a different set of, of folks who run the media. Um, and there's not always communication between the media team at a retailer and the produce team, the buyer, the category manager. And so we found that it's really critical to actually, as the brand, come in and facilitate uh, communication between the two different players, the two different teams on the retailer side. Uh, you can't take for granted that that's, that's already happening. That I Yeah, we've had that same experience. And in fact, a lot of our buyers now are just, they just tell us, do not have any communication with them without me being CC'd or me being in the know, because I have been bitten by that before. Like, oh, yeah, we want to do that. We do it. And then maybe the buyer wasn't looped in, um, especially like on our side. I don't know if Diane's business is the same, but we have like an, a sales account manager that would be doing most of the, the day-to-day discussions with the retailer and the buyer. And, um, you know, then it kind of the baton gets hand off to marketing um, and then we might be working with their own brand team and, and what that looks like. And, you know, we think it's great, but not everybody on their side um, maybe were looped in or that loop didn't get closed and that I have been bitten by that before, unfortunately. Or I don't know if you've had this experience. We um, before, you know, retailers kind of started having their own media channels and their own way of doing things, we worked with a third party. So we, when I'm kind of testing the waters and I want to see how an activity would go, um, like maybe I did a targeted, a targeted ad with, um, you know, a retailer and we had one variety that we're pushing and I just wanted to test the waters and see how it went. So I went ahead and did it, but um, didn't necessarily tell the retailer I was doing it because I didn't know how it would go, but I just kind of said like, you know, available here. And, you know, next thing I know, I'm getting an email that's like, what did you do? I'm out of product. You didn't tell me this. And I was like, I didn't know if it would actually work or not. (laughs) So, I mean, (laughs) we're talking years ago, but, you know, I'm just like, I don't know if this is, you know, worth it or not. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just going to test the waters and see what I can get away, get away with for, you know, a week and see what happens. But turns out it, it worked really well. And, and then I should have, you know looped in that person. (laughs) You got to tell me when you're doing that stuff. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. I didn't even know if it would work. (laughs) Well, and that's, that's a great point that there's, there's, there's been a lot of test and learn in this environment in recent years. And there continues to be a lot of test and learn, even as we go ahead, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. And I think every time you do an activity or every time you do something, it changes. Um, there's, you know, different things you can do, different, um, approaches, different ways. I mean, even, you know, again, back to Instacart for an example, I, I don't think I've had the same account contact for longer than three months at a time. And then they're always updating and it's all really, really cool updates and different ways of doing it, but it's way different from when we started back in 2019. So I feel like just when I think I'm starting to get it and I understand the whole process now, you know, 
something else has changed and, and they're doing something different. So being really, really well-versed and communicating with all of these platforms um, is really important because it's just ever-changing and growing and it's super exciting, but it is it definitely takes a lot of time to keep up to date and up to speed. Well, and I'm glad that you you started us on this this direction, Diane, of part of the important thing for produce suppliers here, it sounds like, is really sort of not independently, but establishing communication with a whole different department of your customer, basically being those marketing folks, because, and I've, I've observed some of the same in terms of that connectivity. There's, there's quite a variety from retailer to retailer on whether those folks are even aware of each other or interact <laughs> meaningfully, you know, um, on an ongoing basis. Some, some do, and there's, they, they know who to point you to and those sorts of things. And then others say, uh, I'm not involved with that. You you can reach out to them separately. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, I'm curious also, how have you all seen these opportunities as a whole evolve in even the last couple years during COVID? I imagine people were trying new things to, to bring people in or, or reach people in different ways with folks kind of running through the stores uh, during the pandemic and all that sort of thing. Diane, what, what changes, if any, have you observed? I think um, there's so there's a lot of competition in the retail media network space. So, you know, there are many retailers who are investing in RMNs. And, um, and so they constantly introduce new tactics um, and then also new ways to measure and and the quality of data is really evolving. And so that's that's um, I think a benefit to the supplier is that there is so much competition. And then not just competition, you know, between retailers, but also, you know, as Danielle has mentioned, the Instacarts, the ships, the uh, their shopper engagement platforms like Ibotta. And they all want um, a, a piece of the pie as well. And they're offering ways to engage with shoppers. Um, in really targeted and specific ways. And I think that's super important for, for suppliers like us in produce who have limited dollars is to get as targeted, as specific as we can. And for me, that's a really uh, big advantage of, of all of this competition in the spaces. They are evolving to meet that need in, in a better way. Yeah, I agree. And I think they're um, starting to understand too that produce works way differently than any other department within the store. Um, you know, they might come from Doritos or what Frito Lay, Coke, Pepsi, and and they're just like, well, it's just as simple. This is what you do, and and you know, you explaining to them like uh, my product might not be in every single. Yes, there are apples in in most grocery stores, but they're not my apples. Or you know, like understanding those little caveats that. Um, when you are dealing with people who are not retailer director or retailer specific um, and those, those other third party companies and, and kind of educating them, it, it's definitely a learning curve, I think too. Now, if you go back and listen to that full episode, you'll also hear from RPE's e-commerce manager, Ashley Pigo, who was also enlightening on this topic. Now, someone who's always excellent to talk with about consumer trends and how retailers can capitalize on them is Anne-Marie Rohrink, principal of 210 Analytics. And one of the fascinating tidbits from one of our most recent chats this year 
was on how consumers are using chat GPT for meal planning. Something else that uh, that you covered in this study that I thought was super interesting, the technology piece. We've seen a lot of headlines about chat GPT. And uh, as somebody who has specialized in words for many years, the idea of handing that over is a little frightening. But I'm curious what you've seen and how people are experimenting with what certainly is a tool with a lot of potential, given the right parameters, probably. One hundred percent. I mean, to your point, uh, I think we are far ways from being able to say run with it. Um, but certainly it's a start for many people. And what I thought was fascinating is uh, one of the repeating questions, one of the very few repeating questions, because this was year three of the SAPC research was, you know, how do you, what are your sources of meal planning um, inspiration? And one big conclusion was actually that routine is making a little bit of a comeback. And that is a big one for the simple reason that it is a way to make sure that when you spend the money, you're actually going to spend it wisely, right? Because if you bought that before, so really getting people to try new things might be a wee bit harder. So we got to work a little bit harder at that. Uh, but the big conclusion there was that 5% of people said, I use chat GPT to do my meal planning. Now, you're probably wondering why in the world does this woman get excited over 5%? <laughs> my whole idea was a year ago, nobody had it heard zero. of it. Yeah. <laughs> did not know it wasn't GP, whatever the letters were. And now 5% of the population say, right along with TikTok and Pinterest and everything else, I'm using ChatGPT. So I went in it, I downloaded it. And I said, I, I thought I was being difficult. And I said, meal plan me for a week for a family of four, uh, under 20 minute meals and healthy and on a budget. So I, I threw in any parameter that I could possibly think about. And it is amazing how instantly it starts to spit out this menu and it gives you seven dinners. And what I loved was clearly AI is not in our kitchen. It is not in, in the restaurant. It doesn't see what we cook, how we cook and, and what we order, but it learns from what's online. And so that positive association of produce with health and, and plant forward eating really came out in the types of meals that AI was suggesting to me um, because a lot of the options for my seven days always included a fresh fruit or vegetable. And there were several plant-based, plant-forward items in there as well. And then I said, well, now, okay, fine. I agree with your menu. Change it into a grocery list for me. And instantly it said, meat department, buy this, this, and this, vegetables, this, this, and this, fruit, this, this, and this. So um, I can very easily see, and certainly from the survey, our follow-up question was, okay, what are you using? Uh, AI or not, what could you envision it being useful for? And it was exactly that, just researching things, having it do planning and and just kickstarting off some of the, uh, you know, our, the things we all struggle with. So very interesting to see. Oh, that's, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'll be very curious to see how that develops because certainly I know one of the, one of the functions on the, uh, I don't know if, uh, it was Weight Watchers. Now it's WW. I don't know if they switch back to the old branding, but they have a sort of a meal planning function on the app. And one of the things they do is they say, you know, 
list the ingredients you have in your house or have in your kitchen, and then we'll spit out recipes that have those things, right? And that seems like something that, I mean, man, talk about taking some some steps out of the equation if you can put it in. Hey, I these are the proteins I have. You know, these are the these are the vegetables and fruits that I have. Make me a meal plan where I only have to spend, you know, fifty dollars at the grocery store, right? Maybe that's a little too complex. I don't know. No, no, no. I think there's actually what they call smart refrigerators coming into the market right now that take pictures of what you have in your refrigerator. Talking about Big Brother in your house, um, yeah, and, that's a little terrifying. Suggest uh, meals based on that. So, um, but one thing that the SCPC study really clearly found was what I call the technology paradox, where things like this are super exciting, and people have technology in their fingers so many hours a day. But at the same time, there are parts where uh, food and technology when they touch, there's a little bit more of a hesitation. Um, so laser edging on, on uh, etching on, on fruit and veg, I don't know, is that safe? Or a lot of the shelf uh, life technologies sounds amazing, but I need to make sure it's safe. And so I think for retailers, um, a lot of technology happening on the assortment, um, all these different we'll call them operational sides. And I think that's where we're going to see very rapid adoption of technology. But anything that is consumer facing, it is very important to ask and address that paradox of, is the consumer really looking to adopt this? What might be their concerns? How do I address those concerns? Um, And uh, really making sure that technology investments, which are, are usually big ticket items, Uh, will actually be working for you in your favor. As companies in every industry continue in 2024 to explore how best to harness artificial intelligence, we'll be sure to come back to Anne-Marie for more examples of what this looks like in grocery. Now, last but not least, I wanted to include a segment from our latest episode with Brian Newmainville. He's the principal of the Feedback Group, Now, Brian's a longtime grocery retail veteran and a consumer research expert. And we talked about the many ways shoppers were responding to inflation earlier this year. Here's what he was observing. One thing I would mention is that private label pricing um, has definitely taken on even more importance and and shoppers are giving it credit for being um, better versus national brands. Mm. So that's one thing I think I would point out that's kind of new. Quality stayed the same um, compared to last year. And the other thing I would throw out is, you know, we, we, we're still hearing a lot about inflation. And I think that um, what, in our study, what we did is we compared what we call inflation coping strategies year over year. So different things that people might do, like buy more items in bulk or buy less healthful items because they're less expensive or use, you know, coupons to, to say or go to short you know, stores to save money. All of those inflation measures, with the exception of um, eating more at home than eating out, which stayed the same at about, I think it was about 46%, but uh, virtually every other method um, out there for inflation coping strategies went up year over year. Mm -hmm. So shoppers, the other one that didn't was shoppers are kind of identified where they know they'll go to save money. So there's a little less, you know, running around from store to store, but they're still comparing items across multiple stores. So 
all of these inflation measures uh, that we're looking at are still way up there and, and up over last year. So I think that's important to keep in mind um, as you think about your shoppers. Um, and also along with that, we asked about how good stores were doing at helping shoppers cope with inflation. Um, and unfortunately that was like almost the bottom. Oof. So, you know, I'll put that out there now because it's timely. Um, that I think, you know, everybody should be, uh, you know, I, I know everybody is, but I mean, shoppers are still very focused on this. So to the extent that you can, you know, listen to their feedback, that you can do the right thing in terms of making sure they get the products they want and help them with their their inflation pressures, that's going to be appreciated by your shoppers. Now, I include that last bit from Brian, because I think we all know while inflation has eased, it behooves everyone to remember and I'm sure it's not a hard concept because I, I believe many households are, are feeling this way. A lot of prices are still much higher than they were before the pandemic. So it's been several years of everybody's dollar not going as far as it used to. All that to say, many consumers are likely going to continue some of these behaviors that Brian talked about even as we head into the new year. And with that, we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much for listening. If you are learning from or otherwise enjoying this podcast, please be sure to rate and review. That helps me keep it rolling and continue to bring you insight from excellent guests like the folks we've mentioned today and many, many others. Thank you again, and we will see you next week on the Produce Retail Podcast. <laughs>